Hello and welcome to For What It's Earth, the nature, environment, climate change and sustainability podcast that explores different topics and asks, is there anything that you and I can do to save the planet just a little bit? I'm Emma Brisian and today we're swimming upstream to chat about freshwater fish in the UK and the state of our rivers with podcaster, photographer and wildlife cameraman Jack Perks. Jack, welcome to For What It's Earth. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, I was going to say having me back, but maybe we don't want to talk about that. But thanks for having me, Emma. I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> I thought, can we can we do a clear run without admitting <laughs> that producer error bungled the first um, time we tried to record this but no straight in okay yeah this is round two so we'll try, <laughs> we'll try and keep it fresh thank you so much for coming back no to the thank you it was yeah. an honest mistake and like we said because I'm not important it's good that I can come back and uh, and I can do it <laughs> <laughs> brilliant Jack okay well let's let's move on swiftly yeah. what one good thing have you done for the planet this week you're an old hat at this now. yeah I should I should know it all off by heart so yeah I've been trying to eat less meat so I did uh, veganuary in in January, unsurprisingly, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I I got on with it pretty well. So I'm still eating meat at the weekends or if I go out, but midweek at home I am just eating uh, vegan or veggie meals and yeah, really enjoying it. And it's not as not I'm, I'm a I love meat. I'm a big meat eater, so it's it's kind of interesting to get into it and find all these alternative recipes. And I'm I'm really enjoying it. What was your motivation for doing veganuary? I was think it because everybody else was, or you just wanted to see what it was like, or you going down the eco impact route, or I think so. I watch. I can't remember which David Attenborough series it was. I think it was um, the one on Netflix. Was it Our Planet or whichever one it was? Anyway, and it was just on about things. There, that there you are could... so many. I know, I know, and they all have very good messages. And it was like, what can you do as an individual? Because there are very few things that you can do that make a a big impact. And the two main things were don't do long haul flights, which I don't do that anyway, so that's not really an issue. And cut down on meat. And I thought, well, I can cut down on meat at the very least. So I've not completely cut it out, but I'm eating a hell of a lot less meat than I used to. And um, I don't say I feel too different in myself, but it's just that that eco impact. I think that that's good. So at the very least, there's like a, a slightly. I don't want to. I don't want to use the word smug. I think smug's an ugly term, even though it can be fun. But there's is there a little yeah. <laughs> sense of self satisfaction there of like knowing that it comes with a good kind of a good side angle to it you've done well yeah 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 no I'm, I'm never going to be a militant vegan or anything like that for sure but I think yeah just knowing that I'm making a little bit of difference is is, is nice I suppose and it also means when I do have meat it tastes amazing oh god yeah no I, I'm, I'm pretty much the same as you um, I'm not strict on which days a week but I know that pretty much only like one or two days a week we eat meat well I mean if we don't go out, which we don't very often, um, we actually don't eat meat very much at all, unless it's... My other yeah. rule is that it's if it's in the reduced section of the supermarket, it's fair game because the other arm of me is saying I'm not wanting to lean into food waste, which is another massive issue uh, that we need to yeah. address in terms of like carbon emissions and just, just total waste of resources. So that's my excuse. If there is meat in the reduced section of Tesco's, that probably goes in my bag. Yeah, no, that makes sense, definitely. Mm. So my one good thing for the week is is very much in tune with you. You're a man who you're a man of many ponds. Would that be an accurate description? <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so going to use I've... it on my website. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Perks, man of many ponds. Um, I have put in my first pond in my garden this year. It's it's only small. It's it's not quite as big as like a paddling pool, but it's bigger than your kind of your washing up sink. And I'm thrilled, but. I'm, it's taking a while to look nice and look like a pond. 
So I was wondering whether perhaps as a man of many ponds, you've got any tips for other listeners, um, because I know you've helped me out, but any listeners for for putting in a pond, doing it right and making sure that the pond is as good as it can be for wildlife. So I think maximise the space. So obviously, I remember you saying that you you don't have an enormous garden, so you sort of make make do with the size that you can. So I think that's a fair point. Like, don't ever think that your garden's too small for a pond, even if you just have something the size of a washing up bowl. Or even mm-hmm. if it is a washing up bowl, what they act as is a bit like a service station. So there might mm-hmm. be like a big pond, say, 100 metres away in one direction. And then in another direction, there's another pond. But they're a little bit too far to connect the dots. And your little pond is a little bit like a pit stop for the frogs, for the dragonflies, just to stop off, rest up, and then carry on their journey. So even small ponds have a use, definitely. And and it will take a couple of years to mature. So it might look a bit rough and ready. When when did you do it? When when did you do your pond? Like literally uh, in the last week. Yeah, it's very, oh, very fresh. Okay. I, um, I, right, I had yeah. COVID, uh, so I wasn't working. And then I started, to, I would have basically mornings where I'd have loads of energy and then by 12pm I'd feel awful. So I made the most of my mornings oh, yeah, and I dug yeah. out a pond. <laughs> I was like, you know what, it's sunny. <laughs> And I've really wanted to put in yeah. a pond this year, so I'm doing it. But I think I think maybe I've left it slightly too late because one of my main motivations was obviously, yes, to be amazing for wildlife. And now I know that it's the perfect kind of shell garage on the motorway of things travelling <laughs> through my neighbourhood. But um, I was really hoping to attract frogs because I have a massive problem with kind of slugs and snail patrols in my garden where yeah. I try and grow loads of vegetables. So I thought, oh, I'll try and get frogs in to, to manage them um, a bit more naturally. But I, I think I might have missed the kind of spawning i don't want to say deadline because nature doesn't have deadlines but like if frogs yeah. don't know that it's there maybe they won't have found it this year yeah it might be a little bit late this year do you know if you've got any ponds nearby like have any of your neighbors got ponds i haven't spotted any from my lofty position in the spare yeah. room office um no i don't think that my neighborhood or i don't think okay. my immediate neighbors are particularly wildlifey no it's just how you've got to think of how they get there. But I mean, it, it, they turn up in all kinds of crazy places. And, and people also always think of frogs of only living by the pond. But that's mm. only in the spring. The rest of the year, they're out having a whale of a time in the hedgerows and, and, and meadows and stuff. So, yeah, you'd be surprised. They'll find their way. So fingers crossed, maybe next year you get some. I've definitely had either a toad or a frog in my garden a couple of times because one scared the life out of me last summer when I went to open my compost bin and it jumped onto my foot <laughs> and I wasn't wearing I wasn't wearing shoes or socks and I was listening to a podcast I think so I wasn't really engaging with my surroundings so just this wet thing landed <laughs> on my foot and I, I'm afraid to say I shrieked and I probably kicked it off so I didn't get a good look at what it was but it was it was definitely a frog so ho- or a toad. Okay. Um, so hopefully there are some in the vicinity. Yeah. I mean, if, you've, if there's one in your compost bin, then they're around, aren't they? So that would be, be great. It, did you use a liner or is it a preformed pond? I did. I used a liner. I did uh, follow the instructions. I dug it out, put some sand down, had like a kind of fleecy, felty, soft layer and then a pond liner. And I've put some, uh, some gravel and some soil at the bottom and I've put some kind of like stones and woody bits around to kind of allow things in and out roots and I've got some shallow bits and a deep bit and I've put in some pond plants that are supposed to oxygenate the water I've clearly done my yeah. research normally I just bungle in and see what happens but I, I did do some googling no, you, this one you sound like you know what you're doing so that's always uh, always a bonus isn't it so we need to celebrate a couple of listener one good things and I'm going to kick this off actually by giving my parents the biggest mega shout out because they did something this week that I never thought that they would do but I've been trying to slowly persuade them to do for years 
they've actually gone and signed up to get solar panels on their roof. And I'm thrilled. I'm so impressed. I'm, and I think it's potentially because energy prices are due to go up and maybe suddenly it's slightly more viable uh, because now, yeah. you know, the cost of them will be repaid effectively in like three years rather than 10. But I'm I'm delighted. I think that's one of the best things you can possibly do uh, to increase not only your reliance on renewables, but the fact that you can sell renewables back into the grid and support other people on renewables. I'm just dead chuffed with them. You can get a grant, can't you? Or you used to be able to get grants to help you do it. I think the grant ended fairly recently. Or I don't know if there's oh, a new grant, but there was one that ended last year, which was quite frustrating because it just kind of keeps yeah, them bugger. constantly slightly out of reach for people on uh, small salaries like me. Yeah, no, definitely. I'd, I'd love to have them. But yeah, likewise, I just can't afford the initial lump sum. But mm. I see the long term benefits. But, you know, somewhere down the line, hopefully. One day. So what have you got? I've given I've given you a list. You're a, you're a seasoned podcaster. Okay, I've got Ryan, who has been collecting pallets off the street to build new garden beds. Fantastic. So that's great, isn't it? You, there's not a lot you can't do with a pallet, is there? No, I've got some on my windowsill now that I've turned into planters as well. Pallets are fantastic. And there, you know what? There are so many of them. We really should be using yeah. them as a resource because we're just we're churning them out for all sorts of things. So another thing that yeah. actually everybody can do at home is Laura has swapped to an eco-friendly washing up liquid. Uh, now Leif for Sweden, who was on the podcast recently, um, brought this to my attention. Actually, if you look at the back of a fairy liquid bottle, it physically says this is very harmful to aquatic life. But but nobody reads the back of the bottles. So that's you know something that's quite useful. In fact, for this episode, if we're talking about aquatic life, do a little switch yeah, of what chemicals I- you're putting down the drain. Yeah, I had no idea that fairy liquid uh, was was harmful. You always think, oh, you know, little baby running across the bottle has got to be, you know, good. Sucked <laughs> in by that marketing. Good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What's the alternative? Is there a better one to use? Ecova, I think, is the go-to. And it is more Ecova. expensive, um, which is a bit, a bit frustrating. But um, I think that's yeah. supposed to be... I'm sure there are other brands as well, but that's the, the most well-known one. Okay. I've got Nameless. I'm assuming their name isn't Nameless, but they've just not put their name. <laughs> and uh, on, that would be an unfortunate name, wouldn't it? Uh, on Instagram, <laughs> has been repairing her clothes to make them last longer, which Fun. is good. I think all too often we like ping a button or I mean after lockdown a few of my clothes didn't fit for some reason I think they they must have shrunk shrunk in the wash but you get these buttons pinging off and what and then you think oh well, you know I'm not going to bother with that but it, yeah it obviously makes so much sense if you can repair your clothes so that's great it absolutely does I seem to rip jeans all the time and um not not in the places where it's stylish to have ripped your jeans so I've got a couple no. of pairs which are basically more patched than jean but uh, at some point I'm gonna have to give them up but it is quite satisfying to, to repair your stuff yeah yeah, um, Freya has been making the most of the lovely weather doing something that I've also done today actually and that's hanging their washing outside on the line super using much less energy than a tumble dryer yeah make the most of this nice uh, nice weather we've been having and yeah it's always I think it's satisfying as well in a weird way maybe it's because I'm in my 30s now no I like, love it oh I've just dry yeah <laughs> I, no genuinely I absolutely love so this morning I was like it's going to be a good day for laundry <laughs> It's so sad. But there's that, again, <laughs> coming back on, to that slightly on. smug, like, self-satisfying element of, like, I've done something good because I've done laundry that I was going to do anyway, but I've dramatically reduced the energy consumption required to dry it. Yeah. No, I think definitely. And we've got Hannah, who has been peeing in the shower to save water on flushing in the loo. And, I mean, who doesn't pee in the shower? Superb. I think it's, you know, it's one of life's small joys, is it not? It's sterile. Uh, it saves you sitting on the loo or standing in the loo, you know, whatever your preference. Um, so good, good, good. Well, I guess actually, yeah. I mean, anatomically, I have an advantage for standing up peeing. But um, 
But yeah, no, well done for you, Hannah. Crack on peeing. Good for you. <laughs> Somebody else, nameless, has bought four native whips from the Woodland Trust to plant in her garden, which is fantastic if you've got the space to pop in some trees. Well done. Is what? So I'm being a bit naive. What's a whip? Like a baby tree, a bit like a sapling, but like really tiny. Oh, okay. All right then. Oh, that makes sense. That's good. Um, I've I've got a uh, Kate who had meat eater friends round and fed them vegan food. So kind of a little bit like we were talking about earlier. So that's uh, that's good. Try and get some people on some some good vegan dishes. So why not spread yeah. spread the message? Start the conversation. Yeah, yeah. that's it. It's great. Um, last one from me. Lucy has switched to period pants and says it's the best move she's ever made, which is fantastic because the amount of plastic there is in um, a cycle, which is something you can't really do much about, is is brilliant to be able to um, actually kind of change the carbon footprint of something that we're mostly stuck with as mostly women. Yeah, if you can reduce plastic, that's fantastic. And uh, The last one I've got is sisters Lordy and Taylor have been planting herbs instead of buying them in plastic and using their reusable coffee cups and cutlery out of about I think I said cutlery <laughs> right then cutlery cutlery cutlery. cutlery cutlery oh god I can't read cuttlefish I, and cutlery I, keep... I think yeah okay I can't read listen <laughs> <laughs> Jack let's let's start with you then so um okay. Wildlife cameraman, wildlife photographer, author, podcaster, jack of all trades and big fan of all things fish and I want to say reptile and amphibian. Yeah, so I, I kind of get lumped in with fish, which is absolutely fine. I love fish and I'm happy to shout the message for them. But um, and obviously anyone listening, don't tell anyone. But my main interest is is fish and uh, it's, <laughs> it's not fish, it's reptile. <laughs> you convinced yourself. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm listening to my own propaganda is actually reptiles and amphibians. So that's my main interest. But I think because in the UK we have so few species, there's seven amphibians that are native and six reptiles, I think. Uh, Whereas with the fish, there's over 400 species, marine and freshwater. There's a lot more to go for. So that's why I kind of push the message of fish. And And there's plenty of people pushing herptiles, which is great, but I try and push the fish a little bit more. I like it. I like it. I mean, last time we spoke, um, you got weed on by a natterjack toad in the bid to show me what you've got in your office with you. And I just think that was that was an incredibly cool way to start a conversation. Um, but yeah, yeah, so I, I hadn't really realised that you were as much into amphibians and reptiles as you were, because like you said, a lot of what you push. So your Instagram, for example, your handle is fish twitcher. And I, I had to ask, is fish twitching something like trout tickling? Or is this like bird watching, twitching, but with fish? Yeah, so it's not like some perverted act with a fish. It's basically where you uh, go and watch fish like a bird watcher would. And I, I, I like the term twitcher because it just means you're a little bit more eccentric in that there aren't many people that are going to travel around the country looking at fish, but I suppose I'm one of them. And I think I'm the only person that's seen every species of freshwater fish in Britain. I'm pretty sure. Wow, that is a cool accolade. Have you got yeah. like a plaque, some kind of certificate? <laughs> Uh, it's on no, your business cards, isn't it? <laughs> it should. Yeah, it is. You've 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 seen me through. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I, t- I I will tell. You, I did get asked to join um a book called Dull Men of Great Britain because <gasps> I went oh! fish watching. I know. And they messaged me and they said, "Would you be interested in joining this book?" And I said, "Oh, what's it called?" And they said, "It's called The Dull Men of Great Britain." And I um I won't say exactly what I said, but I said no, but a bit more <laughs> colourful. Um, and in hindsight, I'd love to I wish find I'd out done... who else was approached. Yeah. Well, there was like a, a hedge fancier and a bottle cap collector and a pylon 
enthusiast oh. and just kind of real eccentric people, which is nothing wrong with having a, an interest. But yeah, I didn't want... I should have done it for the crack in hindsight. It would have been fun. <laughs> Again, on the business card, seen every species of native fish and one of the most dull men in Britain. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's quite the LinkedIn profile. But there was a recent yeah. um, study that made the news, I think like, this week actually, about it was like the most boring hobbies in in Britain or people with the most boring hobbies and bird watching was up there. And so loads right? of the, like yeah, but loads of the bird watching community have gone, what? Hang on. We're not boring. No, no you're gonna go feel like to all these amazing In comparison places. of fish watching versus pylon fancying or some of the <laughs> other examples you gave there, I wouldn't have put those in the same category, but that perhaps that's because I'm more kind of um interested in ecology than than the manufacture of pylons. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. I mean, you're always going to be closer to your own hobbies, aren't you? So like, I, I'm not interested in football or cars, but I realise that other people do like those things. Yeah. It's all subjective, isn't it? Okay, well, on that, 60-second pitch, why are fish cool? Okay, so we've got 54 freshwater fish in the UK. Each one of them has got amazing facts uh, and figures about them. I think that it's mainly the fact that there's a mystery. You can walk out of your front door and you can see birds and you can see mammals and you can see insects and flowers, but you're probably not going to see fish unless you've got a moat around your house or whatever. You're not going to see oh, fish. the dream. So that would be good, wouldn't it, one day? <laughs> uh, and it's that hidden world and that's what makes me so interested. But also I think that's what should make other people interested because you just don't know what's down there. Anything could be down there. It could be a little tiny stickleback or a little minnow. It could be a great big mammoth of a pike. Anything mm. could happen down there. And I, and that fascinates me. That freaks me out, though, because as previously discussed with you, I am scared of lampreys. And if, listeners, if you've not come across a lamprey before, let me paint, well, A, stop and Google it because it's horrifying, or B, let me paint you a visual image. It's um, essentially a, a long eel um, and they, instead of having a head, just have like a giant... It's like if you cut a hose pipe in half, they just have like... It just stops at the end and there's this gaping <laughs> open mouth of circular rows and rows and rows of teeth. It looks like something that somebody has invented which wouldn't survive. You know, like kids' drawings when they draw like magical animals. It doesn't look like it should be, but it is. And um, I I don't like them because perhaps because I don't know very much about them, but you actually have quite a good case to put forward for the lamprey. So... We're going to go lamprey watching, Emma. We're going to go see some. Yes. I'm definitely, I'm, I am taking you. Now, lamprey are 300 million years old. So that's twice as old as the dinosaurs, which is bonkers. See, that's they amazing, are, to be fair. They're one of the most primitive vertebrates uh, in, in the world. They've you know been around for a very long time, as I say. And they're so primitive, in fact, that we are more closely related to a salmon than a lamprey is to a salmon, even though they're both classed as fish, even though really there's no such thing as a fish. But I won't go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, fish is a very broad a broad term. So they're incredible creatures and they're parasitic, which is maybe not helping you so much because you're not so no. keen. But... <laughs> I've told you that I'm scared of their very toothy mouths and you've told me that they're parasitic, which means that everything that touches my leg when we're in the water or we're looking, <laughs> we're going lamprey watching, I, ooh, it sends shivers down my spine just thinking about it. But they don't feed in fresh water, so you should be you should be absolutely fine. And and here's okay. a, a little kind of a little game for for listeners. Next time you see a, a nature documentary and there's a basking shark on the telly, there will nearly always be a sea lamprey on it. Always, always. I don't know why they. I think because basking sharks are just big and stupid. You don't need to be smart if you're eating lamprey. Uh, if you're eating plankton, sorry. 
And uh, the it's lamprey. The, it's the other way around. The lamprey's eating the whale shark. Well, the yeah, whale um, shark, yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Yeah, and they just attach to them and they take a little chunk and, and have a nibble. So yeah, and whenever you see basking sharks on telly, there's nearly always a sea lamprey on it. That's going to be on Not my mind next Attenborough documentary. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. But yeah, but they, they don't... I think there have been cases of them attacking people in the Great Lakes in America, but there's never been a case of them attacking people in the UK. Although, actually, there was... I think it was King Henry III supposedly died of eating a surfeit of lamprey. So they didn't kill oh, him okay. like, by attacking him, but he ate so many, whether there's a chemical or whatever, he died from eating them. So don't eat lamprey. Wow. Either. Wasn't planning on it, if I'm honest, but okay. that's good to know. I've got that fact in my back pocket. There you um, go. Is there, listen, is there like an entry-level fish or, or something for, for people that were keen to start to start to learn about what we've got in our rivers, start to go fish-watching, fish-twitching? Is yeah. there something easy that we can all start to see or learn about? Yeah, I think the best one has got to be the stickleback because they're everywhere and I'm sure we've all had a little jam jar and a, and a net and gone and caught stickleback. So they're they're widely accessible. They're hardy. They're pretty hardy. So if you want to keep one in a tank for a couple of weeks, they're pretty good for that. And the males uh, in the spring, so round about now, they develop these fantastic breeding colours. They're a very modern dad because they look after the young. The female just lays the eggs and, and buggers off. And then it's the male that looks after the offspring and he'll fan them, make sure they've got plenty of oxygen. He'll protect them. Um, so there's all these amazing behaviours that you can see in a relatively short period of time, whether it's in a river, a pond, a canal, whatever, they'll all, pretty much all have sticklebacks. So if I was going to start fish twitching, I would go looking for sticklebacks and, uh, and observe them. Okay, good. Right, I'll add that to the list. Stickleback first, then lamprey. Fab. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, <laughs> fish, fish in the UK. See, I go to rivers to look for like kingfishers and beavers. So this actually actually taking the time to look underwater is something that I, I really need to do. It's not really a part of how I think about the river ecosystem. And I think that's probably a flaw in how I interact with the river ecosystem because we need to look at these things as a whole, don't we? And um, yeah. like you said, um, previously you were talking about, you and I have chatted about grayling being a great example of an indicator of how well our rivers are doing. But I wouldn't know that if I wasn't going looking for grayling. No, they're, they're the canary in the mine. So if you've got grayling in a river, you know it's of relatively good quality. Uh, so if the, if the grayling all go overnight, something's gone wrong. And you only really find them kind of in a few southern chalk streams, a few rivers in the Midlands, and then a few up north as well. So they're relatively widespread, but if the river's pretty manky, you ain't going to find the grayling. Mm. So... Just continuing on the background, I, I've asked you previously about migratory fish because I think the perception is that migratory fish means that they're born in a stream, they hang out there until they're old enough, they go out to sea, they live a marine life, then they come back, uh, move upstream again, readjust to being in freshwater and spawn and then mostly die. And that's the classic life cycle of like a salmon, which is sort of the thing that we're all told about as kids. We've all seen salmon runs on the telly as well. But... When we've spoken about migratory fish before, you've said, hang on, that's not the only definition of migratory, because actually a lot of fish will have migratory life cycles, but without ever entering the marine environment, they can migrate up and downstream as well. Yeah, so I, I love salmon, but I feel like they get all the limelight, and there's a lot of other species that are out there as well. So you've got Andromenus fish, which are salmon, which they spawn in freshwater, they live in the sea. And then you've got Catadromenus fish, which are like eels, where they spawn in the sea, but they live in freshwater. But that doesn't mean that you have to have 
a, a cross between fresh and salt to be migratory. So you'll get fish that never leave the river, but they still migrate. So an example of that is on the Norfolk Broads, there was a scientist called Emily Winter, and she did a study of bream and pike on the Norfolk Broads because they wanted to find where they were going. And they put these little tags in them with receivers and they'd find out how far they were travelling because if you talk to a fisherman, they're like, oh, well, you know, they just hang around here all day. And they found that these bream were travelling over 40 kilometres up and down the broads. And that's that's wow. all not including return journeys. So they were doing more than that. So they really do spread out. And whether you're talking about minnows, barbel, chub, uh, they all migrate migrate up and downstream um, to find better feeding grounds, to find better spawning grounds. So technically speaking, there's no such thing as a migratory fish, all uh, as a non-migratory fish. All fish migrate to some degree. And I think this is one of the things that, one of my favourite things that I've learnt about fish in the last couple of weeks is because when I was having a look at why they're important uh, for an ecosystem was the fact that because they move so much, they're actually incredibly important in terms of nutrient cycling and moving nutrients up and downstream. Uh, I just think that's really, really cool and not something that, I don't know, I feel like we should teach kids that. Let's talk to them about the fact that if they move upstream and then they spawn and they leave their eggs or they die, they're bringing all of this this protein and nutrients upstream and helping to kind of restore the upper reaches of a river. That's so cool. Yeah, so if you think about uh, particularly Pacific salmon, but historically Atlantic salmon over here as well, they're obviously getting a lot of uh, nutrients and protein out at the sea and then they're bringing that inland up into the rivers and then whatever's eating them, you know, birds, mammals, whatever, is then taking those carcasses and leaving them in the woodland or they're defecating in the woodland from that. And that is fertilising the forests. So essentially salmon are helping woodland, which is, you'd be like, what? How's the fish helping That's the woodland? amazing. Fish but compost. Yeah, basically. They're, just, they're basically just fish compost. So without those salmon, you have a detrimental effect to the woodland, which is not something that you would generally connect the two dots to which is amazing no definitely not and it's it's the perfect example of why if we were asking why are fish important understanding that looking after and making sure that all of our fish stocks are doing well is not just a problem for the river and the water that we see in the valleys like it's it's a bigger a much bigger ecosystem issue if we're going to be losing a part of these ecosystems so Onto that, we are losing a lot of our freshwater fish. We've got an 83% decline has been seen in all freshwater species, not just fish, globally since 1970. That's pretty horrifying. So let's have a look at why. What, what, you know, what are the threats that our fish are currently facing in our rivers? Uh, it's a cocktail of issues. So it's not like this is the one problem, this is the only problem we need to sort out. Unfortunately, there's a lot of things. So you've got Obviously, pollution, you've got water abstraction, which is where we're taking water out of rivers for, for our own use, invasive species, habitat loss, filtration, overfishing, disease, uh, barriers to migration. So all of these issues affect each river in different degrees. And obviously, that's putting a huge amount of pressure on not only fish, but you know all wildlife that use rivers. Absolutely. I mean, that's plenty of things, isn't it? And, and um, <laughs> one of the things that we've... <laughs> Like if you're if you're thinking about the life of a fish, that is quite a hard 
life of things to be coming up against. One of my, I was going to say favourite, but it's absolutely not favourite, but one of the easier ones to talk about, because we're hearing a lot about it in the news, is poo and untreated sewage. You know, we're seeing yeah. so, so many reports, particularly even recently, of, um, you know, the, the volume and the frequency of which uh, sewage companies will dump, particularly untreated sewage, into our rivers in the UK illegally. And we're also seeing a rise in wild swimming. And I really don't like to think of the <laughs> two of them as paired together. But I mean, data recently from the Environment Agency uh, showed that in 2020, 400,000 times raw sewage was treated into England's rivers. Yeah. That is so many times. We have 365 yeah. days a year. So how many it's... times is that a day? I'm not going to do the math, but... Oh. A lot. <laughs> does this cross your mind? Because you're a man who spends a lot of time snorkeling in streams. Does this cross your mind a lot? Or is it a big part of how you plan what you do? Well, I never really think of myself as a wild swimmer, but I guess I am because I'm always snorkeling in, in rivers. And um, touch wood, I've never actually gotten ill from going in a river. I think my immune system must be like a brick wall because the amount of germs that I've inhaled over the years. But when we think of sewage going into the water, it's it's very easy to picture like like a sea of turds floating down. <laughs> but the reality yeah. is it's it's generally just grey water. It's still Gosh. bad. I'm not saying it's good, but it is just like a, a mushy a mushy stuff. Mm. Uh, but but also generally, I try and avoid the really poor rivers because there's not a lot to film in there. I mean, there are people who are doing that and they're doing it very well. But I tend to try and find the last sliver of a nice river, which is getting harder and harder. You know, in the 10 years I've been filming rivers, it is getting harder to find clean rivers with lots of fish, which is sad, really, that I'm noticing that mm. in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, that's that's, that's always hard when you... Because you can, you can throw as many statistics at things as you like, isn't it? But when you hear someone who's anecdotally seen that or it's impacted yeah. your life, that always makes it feel... Uh, slightly more real and you can connect with that a little bit more yeah definitely so that's that's one of the main reasons i don't wild swim in the avon because there are some amazing or the avon around bath anyway there are some amazing and quite easily accessible wild swimming spots but um the color of the water makes me slightly suspicious and obviously the fear of lampreys um <laughs> how about things like um you know fertilizer use and pesticide use and, and everything that runs off the land as opposed to being dumped in through pipes how do yeah. things like pesticide use and, and fertilizers coming from often agricultural practices, what what impact do they have on our fish? So they're often a kind of a slow killer in many ways. So I think when people picture a pollution incident, they picture like hundreds of fish belly up dying. But obviously that's only going to happen once in a river. So you're going to have that major kill and then that won't happen again because all the fish are dead. So it's very easy to be like, oh, well, it's okay because there's no dead fish. So just because there's no dead fish doesn't mean it's not a problem. Uh, the other key is that what a lot of these chemicals, whether it's pesticides or agricultural runoff, they degrade the river habitat so much that the fish that are already there can survive, but they can't successfully spawn. So what you end up with is lots of big fish, which again, anglers quite like, but you're not getting any recruition. Recruition? Recruitment. That's the word. I can't talk. So, <laughs> I like um, recruition though. That's quite yeah, nice. Yeah, recruition. There is a fish called recruition actually. So maybe that's why, um, ah, maybe that's why, okay. that's why I popped in Tip my head. Yeah, so you end up choking the gravels and you end up getting rid of all the weeds, which is where these fish are going to spawn, so that the big fish don't have anywhere to breed. There's no little ones coming through. You're just ending up with bigger and bigger fish. And most coarse fish live anywhere from 10 to 15 years, so relatively long-lived. So it takes a while before those fish die out, and then you end up with pretty much a devoid ecosystem. And then not to add all the other pressures as well that we mentioned as well. So mm. it's it's a hard life being a fish in certain rivers. 
Yes, I think it's a hard life being most elements of wildlife anywhere near where they yeah. interact with humans, um, yeah. which is a sad state of affairs. But segueing nicely, a lot of humans are doing a lot of very cool and interesting things to help try and restore and repair and rewild our rivers. One of which, the most fascinating for me, is the, the concept of re-wiggling a river, because this is really big landscape scale kind of intervention. But I like using the term intervention because we're intervening to undo one of our previous interventions. And this is where in the last kind of 100, 200 years, when we realised that we could get from point A to point B via a river and shipping all of our stuff around the country, we went, God, you know, those meandering parts are really slowing us down. We're humans. Let's just do some digging. And we, we straightened out so many of our rivers in the UK because it made it way easier for us to kind of industrialise and ship and connect communities and um, and trade without at all knowing the impact that that had on what should have been a very wiggly river ecosystem. So by doing this, we've essentially, we've stopped the slowing down nature of a wiggly river. So rivers are running much, much faster. Everything is rushing much faster through it. You've lost a lot of the kind of little habitats that are created by the meandering parts of the rivers. You've lost a lot of the wetlands that stand alongside all of the wiggles. And we've also lost a lot of our kind of riparian habitat that sits right on the edge, um, which supports a huge amount of wildlife as well. So there are lots of really cool projects in the UK. I've seen a couple in Cumbria where they've gone, this should have been a wiggly river. We've bought the land or we've worked with the landowner and they've gone and taken diggers in and done something that looks incredibly dramatic and looks really damaging when you first look at it. But once allowed to settle back in to being a wiggly river, creates an amazing habitat for wildlife. It's brilliant. Well, you're getting different flow rates. You're getting little eddies and areas for, for animals to hide in, better spawning habitat. And I think there's groups like the Wild Trout Trust. They do a lot of great work, the Rivers Trust and, and the, the Environment Agency. So there's lots of different groups working to wiggle our rivers, which is good. That's what we need. We need more wiggle in our life. Absolutely. And as a kayaker, that's, I mean, that's how I spend most of my river escapades. I way prefer a wiggly river than a straight one. Yeah. yeah Give yeah, me yeah. some adventure. Um, Not knowing what's around the corner. <laughs> or what's underneath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, Jack, I mean, if we're talking about rewilding, anyone who's been anywhere near your social media recently can only talk about one species. Burbot. Yeah. Talk to me about the burbot. Yeah. Uh, so I quite like burbot, if you hadn't already guessed. So if for those that don't know what a burbot is, burbot are a freshwater cod. They were present in the UK up until around 1969. That was the last confirmed burbot. So this is an animal that we've lost in living memory. This isn't beavers, which were 400. I mean, you'll correct me on this, about 400 years ago, beavers. Yeah. Something like that. them to extinction. And then, yeah. And lynx were like 1,300 years ago. But this is an animal where there could be people sat in a care home who remember catching burbot when they were younger. So they were here wow. up until relatively recently. We think they died out because of a collection of habitat loss. So straight rivers, they're no good for burbot. They love a wiggle. They like a wiggly river. Uh, <laughs> they like floodplains to go out and breed on. And also water quality, which is slightly ironic because they're not actually that sensitive. It's just that in the 1960s, our rivers were so bad. If you think they're bad now, in the 60s, they were just horrendous that's what killed them off but unlike other fish where they were easy to reintroduce because they were in lakes and whatnot burbot weren't so it's harder to to bring those back naturally um so i'm, I'm fighting the corner for the burbot because and you know I, I love a beaver as much as the next man or woman everyone loves a beaver but uh the burbot are these kind of slimy 
brown look I mean I think they're gorgeous I think they're beautiful <laughs> but they're not quite as 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 glitzy as uh, as a red kite or something like that so they just need lifting up a little bit more and that's what I'm trying to do to get everyone to be a burbot believer and try and get them back and you know there are rumblings that hopefully in the next couple of years uh, the Norfolk Rivers Trust are looking at potentially reintroducing them back to Norfolk so fingers crossed ah okay so where would we be um, finding these new burbot to do a restocking of? Okay, um, so burbot were found in the eastern flowing rivers of the UK, so anywhere from South Yorkshire down to Cambridgeshire, Norfolk, East Midlands, that kind of area, that's where they were found before. So Norfolk's within their territory. Where I live in Nottingham, we would have had burbot. In fact, my local museum has a stuffed burbot, so um, we would have had them here. So I'm, I'm hopeful we'll get them get them back there i not to plug my podcast uh unceremoniously but i did do a whole podcast on burbot so if it is something that people want to learn more about then um go over there check that out it's called the bearded tit and i'll put a link in the description so you can go and learn more about burbot it's a great podcast you're very welcome to do a plug absolutely go go on we were going to leave it to the end but we're here now tell people about the bearded tits podcast so the bearded tits podcast uh, i started it a couple of years ago and it's basically a whimsical look into nature and nature nuts so people like me and you who are obsessed with wildlife and trying to find out what makes them tick so everything from presenters on spring watch all the way down to some mad ecologist or something like that (laughs) and we'll just find out what their niche is and why they're so fascinated in their niche it's an adult podcast, I should just warn you. So if you've got a delicate soul and don't like naughty words, it might not, <laughs> the odd it might swear not, here and there, yeah, yeah, the odd, the odd swear. But uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I'm biased. I quite like it, but hopefully, uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I would, other I would be, do. it would be such a shame if you were like, do you know what? Yeah, I don't like it. I, you know, <laughs> you spent all this time creating a wonderful podcast. And you're like, mm, nah. <laughs> yeah, and sorry, and recently you took up, you did a takeover with uh, Sophie Pavel, so you can find Emma on there as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you need more from me, which I don't think anyone ever does, you can go yeah. to the next podcast. I think what we, we spoke loads about kind of nature connection and science communication and eco-anxiety Enya. and stuff, I think. So that was an int- And there was a lot of Enya did pop up quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because why not? Because why not? <laughs> yeah. Back, back to fish. One of the other cool things that uh, some organizations that people are trying to do is repair the kind of the riparian zone this but and create buffer habitats which is really cool because i think one of the ways that we use land in the uk is really interesting to look at over time and it's it's not something i'm an expert in at all um but we have kind of in the last hundred years or so just been intensely focused on getting as much out of our agricultural land in terms of yield as we can often to the detriment of wildlife and that includes farming right up into the very margins of the river So then we don't have these kind of scrubby or bushy or willowy and and, and tree-y kind of zones that sit between the bigger fields or the grasslands and the meadows and the river. And actually those are really important for wildlife and really important for also, they filter a lot of the water and things that are coming off the further reaches of the land. So without those, everything that's coming off the agricultural land or out of our industrial areas or our urban sites it's got even less filters, so it's becoming, it's just more likely to get into the river with all of its pollution. So there are a lot of cool schemes as well at the moment for creating buffer zones and trying to support farmers who are going to implement buffer zones and creating this kind of lost habitat. And also, I don't know about you, but if you're walking along a river, 
I quite like to be walking through a little bit of woodland and like the kind of the riverbanks to be humming with life and wildflowers and all sorts of things going on. It's much nicer. Yeah, definitely. Though those sort of buffers act as a fantastic corridor for for wildlife as well that we might not typically think as living near rivers. So you know, like deer and foxes and things using that, which are going to mm. feel much safer going through that rather than exposed uh, farmland. So those buffers are incredibly important because as well they feed the river in many respects. Because there's going to be a lot of invertebrates that use that, uh, you know, feeding on nectar and whatnot. And then the fish will eat those. So they are important in that respect as well. And in fact, the Beaver Trust uh, did a fantastic film uh, on that uh, recently, which I had a little cameo in, uh, if you, which if you've not seen, not necessarily my cameo bit, but the entire film is absolutely amazing. And it does talk a lot about these buffers. So that's well worth uh, checking out as well. It is. It's called On the Edge and it is coming out very soon. Okay. But I will absolutely well- be shouting about that when that comes out. So we've had a look at some of the things that organisations and big landowners and stuff can do, but how about individuals? Because at For What It's Earth, we do like to try and give people the tools to feel like they can be slightly more empowered to do things as individuals, um, particularly if we don't own big stretches of river. Um, So uh, have you got any advice? What can people do as individuals to kind of support our fish and sort out our rivers a little bit in the UK? Yeah, because it can be a bit daunting, can't it? Because we can't all re-wiggle rivers. Like, so it's like, what can no, you do as nice. an individual? It would be lovely, wouldn't it? So what can we do as individuals? So f- kind of harking back to the fairy liquid, which I will now uh, bin <laughs> in my house, be mindful of what you flush down the drains, toilets and sink. Because although a lot of it does get filtered, occasionally when there's a storm event or sometimes when there's not a storm event, if the water companies are feeling naughty, uh, stuff will get flushed into rivers that is untreated so you think about all that bleach and nearly every bottle of bleach has that kind of classic dead tree and dead fish on that can Mm. be going into a river so i I think we've become so blind to those now because we're so used to seeing those symbols we don't even look at them anymore yeah that's a really good point isn't it like and i think you know I, i appreciate that sometimes you do need these but it's always worth looking that is there an environmentally friendly alternative or is there another way of doing what you want that thing to do it might not be easier but environmentally, it's going to be it's going to be better. So that's one of the the big things. Here's a brand plug, just while we're on it. There's a brand that I use called Ocean Saver, and they basically post you these little sachets, uh, and they're kind of biodegradable sachets, and then you pop them in water in your already existing bottle of whatever it was that you had before, uh, and you can create. They've got like bathroom cleaner, toilet cleaner, floor cleaner, glass cleaner, just general anti-back, all of these things. So then you reuse the same plastic bottle. But also, they're all supposed to be good for the planet uh, and kind of non-intense uh, chemicals. So that's actually, I completely forgot to add that to my notes, but that's a spontaneous one. That's something to saver. investigate as well. Ocean Saver. They're, they're really ocean good for saver. just general okay. everyday cleaning. Yeah, and I will use that. I'm getting quite a lot of tips, actually. So it's, I'm glad that I came back, that we've got some more, uh, <laughs> some more stuff. So I'm no, glad. That's really this, is, this is what we want from Fall Itself. We want knowledge, but we want useful tips. This is, yeah, this is the purpose that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another thing kind of harking back to the one good things, uh, not necessarily that you all have to pee in the shower, but water usage. So mm. just think about how much water... I, mean, I love a bath. I'm a, I'm a big fan of a bath. I love sitting in my own filth in a bath. It's great. But Is it because do, it resembles a pond environment for you? Do you just feel um, well, I mean, nicely immersed in water? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I always wear my snorkel in the bath, regardless, you know, just kind of feel it. Uh, <laughs> just blowing bubbles. <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. My wife just... Because she normally leaves, so I'm not going to deal with this. But um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So water usage. So obviously, just just think about it. Do you need to have a bath? Would a shower work? 
if you're not going out any, I mean, I'm a, I'm a smelly cameraman, so I don't need to shower every day if I'm out in the middle of the wilderness. So just think about how much water you're using because that has an impact. And if you can, particularly, I mean, I'm a very keen gardener. I know you are as well. The more butts, the better. Get some water butts in there. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I love my rain, but it's so good. But I've emptied yeah. it now because I used all of it to reef to fill up my pond because that's oh, better okay. than having the chemicals from tap water. Um, yeah. But now I've completely filled up. Now filled up my pond. I've run out of rainwater in in the butt. I needed a second butt, really. Yeah. I mean, the flip side is it brings everything that is on your roof into it as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. so perhaps there is a question there. But when it comes to like you said, watering your plants or watering your garden. Absolutely, it's free and you yeah. don't have to be relying on the water companies if you're Definitely. able to water your plants through that. What amazes me is how quickly they... F- you know, like you only need one good bit of rain and then your butt is, is bigger. <laughs> <It's full laughs> then you've got a big butt. Uh, then you've got a big butt again. Yeah, so it, like, because I was... Because I, I bought That's I bought what Kim Kardashian's butt. been doing, just standing That's in the it. rain. That's it. That's where we're all going wrong. Um, uh, one of the, the kind of wider things you can do to help rivers is report anything that you see. So let's say you're walking along the river and there's an oil spill or the water looks weird or there's a sewage um, sewage pollution or something bad, then you can report that to the Environment Agency. And if you report it to the Environment Agency, they have to go and investigate. They can't ignore that. See, this is news to me and I love this piece of knowledge. See, because mm. if, it, if it's not reported, then it goes unreported and then they can't... Um, find out about it so yeah report any bad pollution or anything weird that you see on the river the environment agency will give you a number and then that means that afterwards you can follow that up and you can say oh i reported this a few weeks ago can you tell me what that was and they'll say oh it was this because sometimes it is just you know something happening there but it's better to be safe than sorry and there's a number i think you can just get it online you can just ring that number up so anything that you see suspicious on a river uh, with water quality do give the environment agency a ring and they will uh, they'll get back to you on that brilliant yeah um there are also numbers of campaigns as well um if we're talking about connecting with organizations um adding your voice to people shouting for better treatment of our rivers is a really powerful thing that we can do as an individual so yes you can talk to your mps and things um yeah uh, but you can also try and support uh, organizations like surfers against sewage and the rivers trust and some of the other conservation organizations that you've mentioned jack who spend their entire time tirelessly campaigning and fighting for better treatment of these things so for example surfers against sewage actually have an upcoming uh, set of protests they've got 11 protests on the 23rd of april so this will have come out in time for you to have a think and have a plan and see if you're up for doing that um if you like a good protest uh in in the uk uh, where you can kind of be one of many and add your kind of your time and your voice to a, a massive call a coordinated call for water treatment companies to serve our rivers better so I'm uh, I'm a member of the Grayling Society. Yes, that's a thing. Of course you are, most <laughs> dull man in Britain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. I don't don't knock the Grayling Society. All right, they're, they're, they're a bloody good organisation. So uh, most of these organisations, um, if because like for me, I don't know what to say to an MP. Like you know, I, I don't want to be just like I'm not very happy about my river. But what they will often do is they'll draft something for you and they'll send it out to members. And so whether that's you know a, a rivers trust, a fishing club. Or, or whoever, they'll often have a template for you and then you can just tweak it. And I find that's really useful because then you're going to get the most out of your MP and hopefully get some some action. So if you're not sure what to write, obviously these clubs will often have it ready for you as well. Yeah, definitely. Particularly if they're trying to support like the passage of a bill or something or you want your MP yeah. to vote in a certain way. Because when you are contacting your MP, it's one thing to say I'm disgruntled. 
the much better thing is to say I'm disgruntled. Here's why, and here's what I need you or want you to do about it. Because they have to they have to listen to their constituents, but they but they have to know in what direction to take action. So if you can provide an action for them as easily as you can, and lots of other people are also saying would like you to vote in this direction on this thing or pass this through, you're more likely to have success out of the time that you're investing trying to bother your MP. Yeah, no, definitely. I completely agree with that. Mm. So in terms of also what we're eating, uh, a kind of a background theme that's come up through this episode. When I was in Scotland earlier this year or last year, I saw a helicopter transporting tubs of salmon from one lock over a hill into another lock where a vessel was waiting. I spoke to a local and they were saying that this is salmon from this lock and it was being taken directly to Spain. It doesn't even reach the UK market. This seems incredibly messed up to me. So I don't know, perhaps you're the right person to ask for this. What can we do to try and sort out this really wacky relationship we have with the things that we eat as consumers? Is it as simple as not buying as much fish or buying locally? Or are there things that we can look out for, certain species, certain places to buy things where we think we can fish locally? Like, what's what's your answer? Okay, how much time do we have? Um, (laughs) Five minutes. (laughs) Five minutes. Okay, then. Right, this is a nice, easy topic then, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Sorry. No, many many of us uh, might have seen Sea Spiracy. And I don't know if you yes. watched that on Netflix. Mm. And that would have you say that you shouldn't eat fish at all. I think that that's a nice idea. But the reality is a lot of people rely on fish for, for food mm. and protein. And also a lot of people like fish. So I would just kind of say, try and eat fish local where you can. Try to avoid species that are under pressure. Avoid salmon at all, or, or uh, Scottish salmon at all costs. None of it's wild. I mean, you shouldn't eat wild salmon anyway because... Uh, they're in decline. All salmon from Scotland is farmed and salmon farming is an incredibly toxic industry that has loads of environmental repercussions from uh, the amount of, of, of pretty much toxic waste from these farms coming out of them. It's incredibly bad for the environment. The seabed floor mm. underneath these salmon farms is devoid of life. Um, wow. The salmon, I mean, the best way to compare it is that these salmon pens are like battery farm chickens uh, in cages, except they're just swimming around in the sea. They're incredibly diseased, some of them. It's horrendous. If you saw some of I mean, it's all online. It's not a secret. So I, I, I don't eat salmon at all uh, now. I, I eat trout, which, again, that comes with its own problems. I mean, there's, there's no fish that won't be problem-free. It's just what can you outweigh? Um, mm. I guess if you're an angler, you could catch your, literally go and catch your own fish. But, um, yeah, so I don't eat a lot of fish. That's also because I don't really like fish <laughs> to, the, to, to eat, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I don't eat a lot of fish. But yeah, there are some like Pollock is a, is a good one. They're pretty sustainable because they live over rocks. They can't be commercially fished for. So if you go to the chippy, I generally ask for Pollock. If I'm going to have that, that's not bad. Trout is, isn't too bad either. But um, yeah, all fish will have its issues in some way, shape or form. Okay, good. The takeaway being ignore Scottish salmon. Stop feeding that industry. Yeah, I mean, you could okay. do a podcast all One on its own and it is And it's maybe I will. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Lizzie Daly produced a really good film actually about that. I'll put a link to that in the description below. I cannot remember what it was called, but it was very much about looking at that kind of locks penned um, salmon. Yeah, she did. And, she um, did, yeah. So I'll pop a link um, for anyone that wants to yeah. know a little bit more about that. Yeah, one definitely. one last thing before I let you go. You mentioned angling there, and um, my last question was going to be, you know, what's what's the deal with angling? I know it's a great recreational activity, but it's also a massive industry Um here in the UK, we have loads and loads of people love angling. So there are 4 million anglers in the UK that spend around £3 billion a year on angling. 
Yeah. Is it, is it a good thing for the environment as well as just recreation? Are there negative impacts, positives, kind of like broad strokes? Can yeah. Can we make yeah. it greener? Is it green? Is it good? Yeah. So, uh, so I fish. I, I, I was interested in wildlife first. Then when I was about 11, I started fishing. And I think because of that connection, because obviously I wasn't snorkeling in rivers then. So to be able to hold a perch in my hands or a roach, I was mm. like, wow, these are so pretty. So it definitely connected me with nature in that way. Can fishing do more? I think definitely. There's a lot of plastics used in fishing. There's a lot of line that's used in fishing. Um, and anglers don't intentionally dump it, but occasionally it'll get snapped off and whatever. So I think we maybe need to think about the materials that we're using. Are there greener alternatives? Are there things that can, can biodegrade naturally? I, I think that's something that anglers can do. But like you mentioned there, a huge amount of money from anglers, from the rod license that you have to have in the UK, goes back into river conservation. So the money that that I spend, I think it's about 30 quid per angler. Uh, I can't remember the figure you said then, but there's a lot of money that goes into it. That then goes into re-wiggling rivers. It goes into restocking rivers if there's a bad pollution event. It goes into fish surveys to check the health of the river. So without that money, those things just simply wouldn't be done. And I think our rivers would mm. be in a poorer state. So although the act of hooking a fish and reeling isn't going to be doing the fish any favours short term, or in the UK we generally release fish, we don't typically kill them. Mm. I think long term, the benefits outweigh any negatives. Brilliant. That was, see, that's again, angling is a whole other world, which I'm just not a part of or don't. I, yeah. I know very little about. So that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Jack, thank you. Thank you so much in general for coming back <laughs> uh, to do For What It's Earth and to talk to me about all things kind of fish and a little bit of pond there as well. I really appreciate it. Um, where can people get more from you if they'd like to? We, we've told them about the bearded tip, but you're on social media as well. Yeah, uh, and, and thanks for having me as well, Emma. It's really nice to have a proper chat with you and, and kind of waffle about fish as, as usual. But yeah, if you want to kind of see more of my nonsensical fishy nonsense, then uh, you can check me out on Twitter as Fish Twitcher. I'm on, oh no, Instagram, sorry. Instagram, I'm on Fish Twitcher. Uh, Twitter is Jack Perks Photo and then Facebook is Jack Perks Wildlife Media. And you can see some of the, the weird and wacky things that I get up to. And one day you can see a picture of us with a lamprey because I'm taking you up on that. I'm really looking forward to yeah. going to see yeah. more of our underwater life. I think you're probably well, the, the perfect guide for underwater life in rivers. I mean, I don't know how keen you would be to travel, but I know that next month in North Wales, there will be hundreds of them in a river. Uh, which would be Oh, okay. <laughs> I was up for the travel part and then you said hundreds. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, there will be brook lamprey closer to you, but I don't know where. But yeah, we will do that. I'm definitely keen to to go lampreying if that's the thing. I'm up, I'll bring bring the camper van. I'm happy to travel for yeah. nature. Always happy to travel yeah. for nature. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks. And as always, listeners, you can find more from For What It's Earth on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can have a little click in the description to find those. Um, do go ahead and leave us a nice little five star review. That really does help the podcast out. And we'll see you again soon for another episode. Mm-hmm.